Welcome to Tech Travels, hosted by the seasoned tech enthusiast and industry expert, Steve Woodard. With over 25 years of experience and a track record of collaborating with the brightest minds in technology, Steve is your seasoned guide through the ever-evolving world of innovation. Join us as we embark on an insightful journey exploring the past, present, and future of tech under Steve's expert guidance. Welcome back, fellow travelers, to another episode of Tech Travels. In our cosmic journey through the tech cosmos, we are joined today by none other than John Swike, a true luminary in the tech realm and a master technologist with over 25 years of leading the charge and cutting-edge innovation. John's unparalleled experience has been the driving force behind the design and implementation of the most intricate software solutions for numerous Fortune 100 companies. Now, this isn't merely a discussion about tech. It's a thrilling odyssey, and John is our seasoned navigator. Get ready as John delves into Microsoft's monumental leap into OpenAI and what this colossal move means for everyday explorers like you and me. Buckle up, get ready for a ride in the future. Here we go. In a recent CNBC article, it delves into Microsoft's intricate bet on OpenAI, and it highlights both its potential and uncertainties. So John, as we embark on our discussion today, can you shed some light on what caught your attention about this article and how Microsoft's move into OpenAI is really shaping the landscape around artificial intelligence and technology? Well, a lot of people think that Microsoft bought OpenAI, and that's not really true. What Microsoft did is they provided some funding for OpenAI to do its model training in Azure using Azure's rich ecosystem of model development and model training. Uh, using very large data sets. And as a consequence of that, the Azure data centers had to be enriched with very specific enabling technologies that couldn't be done in a traditional data center. Marcus Sinovich actually did a really good talk about enabling or what it takes to enable an Azure data center to, to drive model development, both large language models as well as small language models now. Uh, to drive things like ChatGPT and other uh, language models. ChatGPT, of course, is not the only language model. There's many others, but doing that model training in a, in a large data center uh, capacity in Azure required a significant investment. Uh, so the partnerships that Microsoft has been driving with NVIDIA, as well as Intel and their platform partners and ecosystem partners and ranging down everything from the way compute gets done to the compute capacity to the uh, networking bandwidth in the compute capacity with InfiniBand networking. It gets really geeky really fast what needed to be, in be done. But that major investment of enabling ChatGPT, enabling OpenAI to build models and pump models out with uh, model uh, and, and AI ops uh, was was a significant investment in how does Microsoft take language model development and and streamline that into the products and services that they make. Um, adjacent to what Microsoft has done in investing in OpenAI is a bunch of parallel work that they're doing around. You've probably you know the guests on the show and those that are listening out there in in Radio Land will probably hear Copilot everything. 
Copilot for uh, Microsoft 365, uh, GitHub Copilot, and, and many others. And a lot of those Copilot uh, it, revolution and assistance in task-based type of activities, be it when I'm writing code in C-sharp and Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code or uh, doing things in Windows or doing things in Power Platform or doing things in Dynamics, those are all ex specific examples of building uh, a type of AI, a type of solution into a product uh, that is targeted at a very specific solution, a very specific set of use cases that I need to enable people to do more with less and eliminate toil and you know all the marketing buzzwords that you'll hear with those products and services. I think it's important for our guests and, and or, or for our listeners uh, to kind of conceptualize that AI is really a, a language or a label that applies to products that don't yet really have a specific problem or a specific solution that they're solving. It's kind of a categorical term that is used. And what I've seen in my travels is as soon as there's a very specific problem to be solved, and we have a tool like a co-pilot or something like it, whatever the language, whatever the marketing term is, all of a sudden it gets a new name. And it's no longer referred to AI, it's referred to Microsoft 365 Copilot, because now it's solving very specific problems with automating work processes and such like that. So that's an important distinction that when we're talking AI and we're talking investment in AI, outcome starting with general purpose AI and then uh, evolving into very specific purpose AI uh, is a, an evolution that happens in a lot of companies. And Microsoft is only one of many that is going through that same journey. It's fascinating because, you know, I often ponder on what society will resemble when artificial intelligence really permeates every facet of our lives. I mean, do we envision a scenario where robots attain self-awareness and take charge? Um, I'm not sure. But it's really interesting to consider how AI is really starting to reshape current industries and really prompting us to explore the different contours of the future. So when we say AI is everywhere, it really raises another question I have. So how do we navigate the impact of AI on employment? What does it really mean when we say AI is ubiquitous and it really extends beyond the corporate data center to every device that we interact with? So we think about maybe personal PCs, mobile apps, tablets. How will our world look when AI is truly everywhere? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And let's get the 800-pound gorilla out of the room first, which is you'll hear in the news, you'll hear in the media, you'll hear lots of different places talk about AI replacing jobs, eliminating the need for people in particular jobs. But it would be wise to keep in mind that society has an, undergone a number of revolutions and evolutions and technologies in the past, and that's created different types of jobs uh, to accommodate uh, you know, those new technologies that are evolving. For example, when the Model T was introduced, uh, there were a number of horse uh, maintainers and horseshoe makers and uh, types of job-related activities involved in caring for stables and buggies and such that were indeed 
did dwindle and go away, but they were then replaced by a whole myriad of new related jobs in the same field of metalworking, metallurgy, uh, that a lot of uh, those same people that were touting that the, the rise of the car was going to eliminate jobs all of a sudden transitioned into those different fields. So getting that out of the way, my opinion and what I have seen, at least in the industry, is that the AI technologies, and re keeping in mind that AI is a broad term that covers various things, uh, and we, you can kind of think about it like, how do we use computers? How do we use technology to do things with senses? So things like language, vision, audio, uh, even smell uh, as a technology to help us eliminate manual activities that doesn't mean that those all of a sudden those manual activities no longer to be need to be done. It just may need to be done in a different way. And I kind of like the uh, philosophy that in the future, job related roles in, in any job in any capacity, be it retail or healthcare or anything, is going to involve using those technologies to get work done smarter and cheaper and faster. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. So one major problem the world is running into, and it doesn't matter what country you're in, what time zone you're in, uh, what hemisphere you're in, what society you're a member of as, as an audience listener, uh, we all are struggling with what do we do with uh, recycling? What do we do with better using the resources that we have on this planet? Resources are finite. And putting your, you know, the political stances aside for just a moment, uh, reusing and, and repurposing materials so that they don't go to waste uh, is a wise thing to do. But recycling programs have historically been underwater. Uh, they've been financially upside down because it just is too expensive to maintain equipment from all of the crap that goes into the recycling streams. And one place that AI and automation, particularly AI vision and AI decision-making, uh, have a really large potential to help us eliminate toil is by smart picking of the stuff that goes through recycling streams to better sort the raw materials, things like metals, things like plastics that can be recycled in different ways, and keep that kind of stuff out of the landfill. Um, and even more so, there's a number of initiatives around the world about diverting river plastics from going into the oceans, I think it's called the Ocean Project or something of that nature, uh, pulling plastics and pulling garbage that comes down rivers and keeping it out of our oceans. And a, a part and parcel to that is using AI technologies. Yeah, I, I think as we navigate the landscape of um, AI and its ever-expanding influence, John, I'm really curious about your thoughts on the, um, the societal impact it has. So how can we, as a forward-thinking society, really kind of think about establishing a framework or even just perhaps a regulatory body to govern the development and deployment of AI. So what steps do you really envision that are essential around things like ethical use, transparency, uh, accountability, and just how this really changes because it's a really rapidly evolving technical frontier? That's a good question. So I, I think let's start by understanding that AI as that broader term uh, is really made up of a number of different components. So uh, audio, the vi vi uh, audio, visual, 
language, uh, uh, smell, and each one of those different capabilities has its own set of concerns for governance, its own set of concerns for regulata regulation, regulatory bodies. They're not all the same. So what Microsoft is bringing to the table, because that, that's my, what I know best, but you know, this kind of applies to any hyperscaler or any even startup for that matter that is working in a very specific area of, of an artificial intelligence type of a solution. Uh, it should be concerned with how those different uh, capabilities will be ultimately governed. So w when I expose audio, for example, for a recording so that it can be used to train a particular model, who gets to have access to those those training that training data? A couple of years ago, uh, there was some large company in the news uh, that made uh, smart devices or smart audio devices, and uh, they assured their customers that they were not recording audio. And it came out later that yes, they actually were recording audio. It was in the terms and conditions. It was it was right there, but people weren't reading it. And not understanding that that audio was indeed used for uh, training the language assistant, training the model to help better use language and natural language detection, which is kind of part and partial to what one needs to do in order to make and offer those types of services. So the governance and the control of you know what goes on in a particular set of technologies is probably going to be very specific to the channel and uh, format of the particular technology. You can't really apply a general purpose set of governance to uh, all of these different very specific implementations of what makes up the overall artificial intelligence. You have to kind of delve it out based on what specific capability is that enabling. So a good example is I'm going to apply governance different for audio than I might apply for vision or for uh, for um, language or uh, how about the weird one of smell. Uh, there are specific scenarios or specific use cases in the retail industry where artificial intelligence and smell is actually being used to drive customers into stores and malls. So as people would walk by a particular store, it is possible to detect a, a customer, a potential customer, and use smell to draw them into the store. Uh, and it's a strange one because you don't really hear about that in the news and the news cycle and the hype, but it actually is really happening in the real world. Uh, there's, there's companies that have a vested interest in using smell, everything from the obvious ones like perfume and fragrant, fragrance companies to places like cookie stores in the mall or something like that, or candle stores in the mall that are using smell and fragrance and targeting their customers based on what they know their preferences are or their demographics are or something like that. So it's an interesting one around governance of that. Ah, the sweet smell of technology at work. So we're not just dealing with cookies and candles. We're talking about the full-on aromic strategy at the mall. So next thing you know, I'll be walking into the store and they'll say, hey, welcome back. We knew you'd be coming in and sniffing around. <laughs> but um, all right. So Elon Musk once warned around the potential risks of AI, stating, quote, I'm essentially inclined to think that there should be some sort of regulatory oversight, maybe at the national and international level, just to make sure that we don't do something very foolish. 
I mean, artificial intelligence were summoning the demons, he said. John, I really want to know, how do you really interpret Musk's caution? And in your view, how well, what is our role in how regulatory oversight should play in the development and deployment of AI at a global scale? That's an interesting question. So like all things that are new and untrusted, uh, there's an immediate reaction to govern those things so that people have more uh, transparency in what's going on in those respective organizations. And like giving a company language, like giving a company pictures, like giving a company videos, uh, you know, you want to know what's going on with the data that you create and what those companies are doing. And unfortunately, when it's a new horizon, when it is an ungoverned type of body, there really are no rules and regulations other than the ones that the lawyers put in the terms and conditions. So can one central body govern that effectively? My opinion is no. Uh, I, you know, Government entities, as, as much as we need them in various capacities, will always be behind where uh, corporations and, and where the money is, you know, the uh, the old adage, follow the money. Uh, yeah, and in many ways, it really kind of harkens back to the early internet boom. It, it really was a time of relentless uh, emergence, right? Um, and even the government um, was tethered to a 1980s mindset, particularly in telecom. Uh, and it really struggled to fathom the internet's vast potential. And in, in many ways, it, it wasn't until the early 2000s that regulatory boundaries were deemed necessary. Um, however, just as they got caught up, I mean, the, the second wave hit, uh, cue the rise of social media giants like Facebook and MySpace. Uh, now we seem like we find ourselves in what feels like the third or fourth iterative wave of technology and really on the brink of yeah. widespread adoption and potential that really kind of has an encompassing element of transformation. It, it already is. And, and part, of, part of what I think it's important for listeners to kind of think about is What's going on with AI and ChatGPT as a funk form of a type of AI, as a language calculator, these are all symptoms of the need to govern things around privacy. So whether it's the, the legacy models of social media, those are privacy concerns. Uh, whether it's AI, there's still privacy concerns. At the end of the day, it really isn't about the AI itself. Is really about what does one do with the data that I produce and what degree of transparency do I have? Now, there's other angles to this, right? Like, for example, intellectual property, like what does one produce and what does one consume? I think in the news lately, there's been a whole host of discussions around uh, how uh, generation of images with DALI and some of the other uh, image generation models, how are those trained? Uh, are they being trained only through public domain content or are they, you know, through internet uh, discovery and, and training off of those uh, content that is, is published to, to, to the open internet? I think what it does do is it calls to attention people's awareness of when they go and they put an image out in the open, uh, be it on social media or otherwise, uh, understanding the ramifications of what that means. Uh, understanding the terms and conditions of the product or service that they're using. If I publish a image of me on an elaborate vacation in some Caribbean island somewhere, uh, all of a sudden artificial intelligence and, and AI models could theoretically determine that I'm not at home. Uh, and that could be a, a, a new avenue for 
uh, you know, people doing bad things to understand that, you know, people aren't at their houses, which means that um, that's ripe for, you know, potential bad things happening. Uh, or it could also be used on the opposite side for a company that's doing monitoring of your house, a security company, to have some intelligence of, hey, uh, we know that this person is not at home right now because they're posting images of themselves in a different place. Uh, we need to pay more attention to the fire services or police services or ambulatory services or what have you. So it can kind of go both ways. It's just interesting that no one regulatory body is really going to solve all of these privacy things. It's really going to come down to uh, the companies building these capabilities and creating clear and concise terms and conditions and then having our society as a whole understand that what they do with the content that they produce needs to be they need to understand the ramifications of, of, of what they're doing with it uh you, you can't sort of have your cake and eat it too uh it's it's one of those uh scenarios where you have to be aware of what you're doing and and pay attention to that uh it, eventually like all new technologies it will probably work itself out but it's going to take time and iteration to to kind of get to the bottom of, of what's going on um, perhaps the one that was going to drive us this to some resolution or some kind of regulatory body in general is going to be around IP and the business model. Uh, individuals and their privacy concerns probably won't rise to the level of creating a new regulatory body, but when it comes to dollars and cents and people losing money because of songs that they created or lyrics that they wrote or pictures that they drew, uh, that's going to drive the demand for some kind of a legis leg yeah, legislation regulatory body to govern uh, how do those artists, how do those composers, how do those creatives get paid for the works that they have done and then inspired, you know, a, a tool like uh, image generation or something to, to use? Yeah, absolutely, John. I mean, it's, it's like we're on a tech roller coaster, right? I think things will probably smooth out over time. Uh, but hey, I mean, we're we're, we're on on a ride for trial and error. Um, you hit the nail on the head, especially when it comes to green, um, especially the artists and creators. I mean, that's really where the real talk and around rules uh, and regs kick in. I mean, it's 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 not about AI evolving. It's it's really about it's making sure that folks who make cool stuff get their fair share. Yeah, it's it's a it's kind of a, a crazy world we live in at the moment because it's kind of all moving very quickly. Uh, you'll see some some organizations are are building uh, very clear uh, definitions of what they do with your data. And then there's other organizations that kind of don't really tell you what they're doing with your data. And uh, it's important as you're kind of starting to use and consume services that you pay attention to what's going on in that particular service that you're using. And you always have to be thinking about what is the product? Are you the product? Are you the thing that's being monetized? Is the reason that that service is free because you're the product? Uh, and when you're the product, you need should be mindful of, of what does that, what are the ramifications of that in the long run? You might be okay with it. Maybe it's okay that you're the product and, and that's fine because it's saving you the money. Uh, but at the same time, if you choose to not be the product, you know, there, there's alternatives out there that you pay for the service and, and you're less the product, I should say. Uh, at this point, we're probably all to some degree a product, but that hopefully that makes sense that uh, as, as people are listening to this, they should be thinking about how much of a product are they. Yeah, it, it's it's really a dynamic landscape out there. I mean, um, 
understanding how our data is handled is becoming a crucial element of really kind of, it's like choosing a neighborhood to live in. Um, some platforms are very cozy communities where there are very clear rules. And there are others where it might be more like, um, you know, a bustling city where it's a bit unclear, not really sure what's happening behind the scenes. And I think, I think it's really about finding the right fit for comfort um, and peace of mind. All right, John, so got a, I got a really big question for you. So as we have a diverse group of listeners, many being technologists and practitioners, I'm sure they're eager to understand, you know, how do you really demystify the magic behind the scenes? Are there any recommendations um, where you could start with something like certifications or something specific like a learning path around the Microsoft ecosystem, something where, you know, people who want to gain a deeper understanding of this technology, where do they really begin? Well, that's an interesting question. So there's probably a whole diverse audience of listeners out here. And I'm going to guess that a big chunk of those are technologists and practitioners and people that are applying the tools and technologies into industry. And my first recommendation would be to de demystify what, what is the science versus what is the magic. And one of the most effective ways to do that is actually to do some certification, to do some learning, to do some training. Uh, to go through and actually understand the mechanics of what these products and services are doing. So in the Microsoft ecosystem, that's evolving, uh, but there's a number of different Azure and uh, now Microsoft 365 certifications that are now covering things and including things like how do we train models? How do we do um, fairness and bias mitigation and safety checks in the way that we're building, deploying, re-engineering models and and uh and I, i'm using models as an example but there, there's a whole broad scope of different enabling technologies ranging from uh the language understanding service lewis to ai vision to a whole bunch of other things are covered in some of that certification content and understanding how it is done kind of demystifies some of the magicalness of it and reveals where there may be some places to be thinking about uh, those governance concerns. Um, and I, I would strongly recommend starting with that as a technologist because that will help you educate decision makers uh, in organizations that may not be thinking about that. You know, they hear things like AI and AI can solve all of the things. And the reality is, is that that's not exactly the case. Uh, AI can solve very specific problems in very specific uh, fa uh, factions, but it isn't a, a solution to all the things. Um, I'll, I'll, just as a brief anecdote, uh, in, in a previous life, I, I worked at a, a large um, aerospace company uh, that was building, um, uh, well, not airplane things, but airplane-related activities. And they were insistent that they wanted to use AI models and, and uh, build a, an AI ML pipeline, AI ops, all of that good stuff. And that certainly can be done. There's, there's lots of patterns and practices of doing that really well. Well, it turned out that the problem that they were solving was not one of AI, but was one of data engineering. And what they really needed was a, uh, data cleansing activities more in the uh, classical uh, data science, data preparation, data estate type of cleansing and such like that, uh, that was really fit for purpose. And it wasn't that AI wasn't available and it wasn't that AI couldn't play a role. It's just that they got distracted with the shiny object and needed to take a step back 
and say, well, wait a minute, we need to spend some time understanding our domain, understanding our data estate, and getting it ready to use those various types of models and inferences and such on top of before we start getting distracted by the, the shiny thing, the cool thing, the, the, um, uh, the bots, the, uh, the interactiveness of, of things. Uh, doing the legwork, doing the pre-work uh, is largely where the effort is at. Uh, and I'll take it one more example. Uh, in my journeys lately, I've been having a lot of conversations with enterprises who are very interested in the Microsoft 365 Copilot and, and to a lesser degree or to the same degree, but at different areas for the GitHub Copilot. And what all of them have in common is a, a data swamp. They have data estates that need to be cleaned up. They need to, they need to be prepared for enabling these tools so that the things like the governance, the data leakage prevention, the information protection, the data labeling, data classification, uh, labeling and such can be implemented correctly and at scale uh, can be done. And uh, often what will happen is an organization will say, let's go flip the switch. Let's turn on Microsoft 365 Copilot. Let's make things everything better. We can eliminate all the toil. And then all of a sudden, the tool is starting to expose things that may or may not need to be exposed to everyone that wants to do a search. What if there's that enterprise project that you want to have for your eyes only or for this team's eyes only, and it hasn't been labeled or classified yet as, as, as private or as a, a confidential? Uh, those are concerns. Those are data governance concerns, data status concerns that need to be designed and planned and architected the same way that you do any other software engineering activity. They just need to be done from the eyes of enabling a capability, but making sure that there are those checks and balances in place before you just go enable it, thinking through it, uh, modeling it, understanding the ramifications. That's where the certification comes in. That's where the education comes in. And those are really good steps that you can apply no matter what industry you're in uh, and what regulatory bodies you're thinking about, what concerns you're thinking about for data leakage and prevention. Uh, even in the financial financial services industries, there's lots of different related concerns, but it doesn't matter what place you're at, applying some of that. Uh, we, we're going to turn this on. What is the blast radius and who's going to get impacted? is a really good step to take before you actually go do. Maybe that's obvious, but I, I've seen a lot of companies go after this without doing those things, and then they have to play a lot of cleanup oh, later. The data cleanup on aisle five, everyone. Um, <laughs> no, but serious. Um, so I read an article up at Google's annual developer conference. Um, they referred to artificial intelligence or AI more than a hundred times during their two-hour keynote speech. And it, I mean, it seems very cool that there's AI everywhere, but everything, marketing, everything has got basically AI everywhere. I mean, it's really organic and companies are really basically racing to sprinkle this on top of every single product because it seems like it's the current trend and no one wants to be left yeah. out. And, and and that's actually a really good point that a lot of what is now being branded is it it's, includes AI. I saw a, an advertisement for a TV the other day that says, with AI, AI-enabled TV. Well, what does that actually mean? Well, what it really means is it has a voice prompt on it. That's not really AI. That's a voice prompt. And I, may, I guess maybe one could argue that AI 
is just kind of the next buzzword, is just kind of the buzzword bingo language as a marketing term, but understanding kind of well, what does that actually mean when they say AI? Does it mean it's edge computing that's happening right on my TV? Is there a small language model that's running on my TV that if I disconnect it from the internet, it can still do all of those things? If so, well, maybe that's a, a good example of, of edge AI running on my TV as an edge device. But the reality is, is it's, it's probably not. It's probably a, a little bit less sophisticated than with AI. I find that hard to believe for a low-end consumer device in 2024 that we've achieved that. Uh, but it makes sense because the, the idea is that the AI is now evolving into a very specific set of problems that are being solved. And the things like the language, the video, the uh, maybe not the smell, but the, the vision, the language, the audio can be used to solve point problems. You know, in the case of Microsoft 365, automating um, things like invoices and sales receipts and stuff through a CRM or ERP or both platform. I mean, those are real world scenarios that require a lot of work by, by people, uh, manual things. Uh, the best example I've seen is go create a uh, statement of work that looks like a statement of work that we've done for other customers in the past. Well, just from experience, that takes pre-sales organizations and sales organizations mountains of effort and weeks of time and tons of toil and all sorts of things. What if we could just use the institutional memory that we've already generated in the organization that people just don't know where to find it and apply it to creating new artifacts for, for new customers? Well, that's a perfect example of what computers do really well uh, and, and people don't. Uh, and and uh, it's a great example of where that's going to apply to industry. Where it gets more, most interesting, though, is now you add lawyers to the equation and you say, well, can we, can we train our models? Can we train our, our institutional memory on things that might have uh, non-disclosure agreements? Uh, that's an interesting angle to the whole equation and, and, and something that organizations in a lot of places, particularly in legal are now trying to figure out how do we use these technologies to do case reviews? How do we use these technologies to do to create briefings and briefing summaries and all sorts of fancy things, but also being mindful of NDAs and, and other legal constraints that they have to place on particular clients, particular things. Absolutely intriguing, John. Um, I, I really extend my heartfelt gratitude for um, engaging in this captivating conversation and really helping shed light on the intricacies of AI. Um, your insights are truly valuable, and I appreciate your contributions to our conversation today. Thank you for enriching our exploration into the world of technology, and I eagerly anticipate the prospect of having you back for more insightful discussions. Yeah, thanks, Steve. I hope to be back. We'll, we'll, we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Tech Travels Podcast with Steve Woodard. Please tune in next time and be sure to follow us and subscribe on the Apple Podcast and Spotify platforms. We'll see you next time.